0: Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 12. In your pew Bible, that's found on page 1,405. 1,405. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 1. Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need.
1: Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the only people who need exhortation or warning or urging or cautions or encouragement are the people who already have one foot in sin. That's a big mistake. We think that if a person is doing well, that the only thing he needs is perhaps praise, commendation, or maybe he doesn't need anything at all from us. It's a mistake. Experience teaches us that it's a mistake, and this scripture teaches us that it's a mistake. Every believer, no matter how poorly or how well things are going, needs exhortation, encouragement, warnings, Cautions, urgings, stirrings up, inspiration. I was on the phone yesterday morning with a friend in the L.A. area who told me of another pastor. 31 years in the ministry, President Reagan's pastor. One of the most foremost Presbyterian churches in the L.A. area is now out of the ministry because of sexual misconduct again. My friend on the phone said, John... I don't think it would have happened. It was all over the L.A. Times yesterday. I don't think it would have happened if he was in a small group of men who had held him more closely accountable. But we Americans, or I perhaps should say we humans, we don't like anybody stepping into our soul space and calling us to account and encouraging us and exhorting us as though everything weren't going perfectly when they look like they're going perfectly. It's not a biblical approach to reserve exhortations, warnings, cautions, encouragements only for people who already have one foot in sin. That's not the biblical way. The biblical way is day after day for all saints to exhort all saints to press on and to be vigilant. And that's evident in this text in two places. Let me show you both of them. Number one is in verse one. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, Just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Now, notice two phrases. Notice the phrase, just as you actually do walk. This is a good church. These people are walking in the way that pleases God. And Paul did not infer, therefore, they don't need a letter. Therefore, I don't need to exhort them. That's not his inference. His inference is, that you may excel still more. That word is not prompted by a failing church. It's prompted by a successful church. Successful saints need to be exhorted day after day that they might, to use Paul's words, Excel more and more. It's the moreness of our excelling that guards us from self-satisfaction and the numbing effect of success. Here's the second example, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Now, as, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. If someone is living so close to God that you know that you can say of them with honesty, God teaches them they hardly need a man. God teaches them. They're in so tune with God, he's their teacher, not Pastor John, not their Sunday school teacher. God teaches them. And if that person is so abounding in love that not just this church, but the whole area knows of their love, that person should be exhorted. That person should be warned. That person should be cautioned. That person should be said, press on, brother, excel, don't be satisfied. So do not make the mistake thinking that, oh, she's doing well. I would be presumptuous to exhort her. He's the pastor. I would be presumptuous to query him about his sex life or about his relation to his wife or how it's going with his children or how he's handling his money Do not fall into the worldly trap that only reads from the outside and says, well, this church is so successful, it needs no exhortation from the Lord. This Sunday school teacher doesn't need anything. I need exhortation. Let us not fall into that mistake. Let us rather be like Paul. Verse 1, you are walking in a way to please God. Therefore... Excel still more, verse 9 or 10. You are loving as those who are taught by God. Therefore, excel still more. It is not true that the only people that need to be exhorted are those who have a foot in sin already. In fact, Hebrews three twelve puts it like this. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. But encourage one another day after day, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. No one has run the race so long or so well, not even 31 years in the pastorate, that he can do without Being held accountable and being exhorted day in and day out to press on and advance in holiness. It is the advancing that is the safety. Self-satisfaction is deadly for every saint. And therefore, some of the most advanced, evidently, are in the greatest danger. This is a model now in verse 1, as I see it, a model for exhortation and accountability in Bethlehem Baptist Church, especially in our small groups, for how the church covenant may be applied to each other in daily accountability. What I want to do is take verse 1 and show you four features, four characteristics of a model of exhortation and accountability that I think applies beautifully to our small groups and enables us to take the church covenant and use it to help each other grow and excel still more. Here's feature number one. There is a way to walk to please God. That's that's it. That's my first point. There is a way to walk to please God. By implication, there's a way to walk that does not please God. Now, I'm just not sure that everybody believes that today. I hear so much talk about unconditionality... Then I wonder, hmm, do they really believe you can displease God by living a certain way? That God can frown. Well, God can frown. God can be displeased and God can discipline and God can even take the life of his saints lest they be destroyed. First Corinthians 11 says, there is a way to walk that pleases God. Right in the middle of verse 1. How you ought to walk and to please God. That's number one. Number two. The Thessalonians had received that. They had accepted that. And were making good headway in it. As you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you actually do walk. And then verse 2 tells them what they had received. Namely, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So verse 2, Paul says what he had given them, and verse 1 says they had received it. The commandments describe the way to walk and please God. Now let's put this in a covenant context. What had happened in Thessalonica was that a messenger of the new covenant had arrived and begun to preach the gospel of the covenant. And when you preach the gospel of the covenant, you exalt a sovereign initiative taking God who sends his son into the world to die for sinners and then he holds out covenant terms to the world. And you may reject those terms and perish, or you may receive the terms and live. And the terms of the covenant are faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And these, these Thessalonians had received the covenant. And Paul then had filled up the way of the covenant, the life of the covenant. He had, in effect, given them a church covenant. He had said, Here is the way to walk and to please God. Here are commandments that the Lord Jesus gave from the Sermon on the Mount and from the Old Testament. Walk in these and you will please him and you will confirm your participation in the covenant by faith. So verse 2 says that Paul had given commandments. Verse 1 says they had received those commandments. And do you remember what we've been stressing as the very heart and uniqueness of the new covenant? The heart and the uniqueness of the new covenant is God will write the law upon your hearts. God will circumcise your heart. God will put His Spirit within you and cause you to walk in His statutes. Have you seen that in this text? Did anybody notice that? Verse 9. You have no need for anyone to write to you. That's almost right out of Jeremiah 31, 33. Following. You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God. You are New Covenant people. I am not just taking a list of commandments, bringing them to a hardened people, and pressing them on you to try to get you to moralize and straighten up. That's not the New Covenant. That's not Christianity. I am coming with a message of gospel initiative. I am telling you there are conditions, but then I'm telling you, God meets the conditions. If the condition is love, God teaches you to love. If it's holiness, God teaches you to be holy. If it's chastity, God gives chastity. The glory of the new covenant right here in this text is that these people had been taught by God. Paul didn't have to keep bending their arm and say, come on, clean it up. He simply said, excel still more. Excel still more in what God is teaching you. And so the second feature of this model of exhortation and accountability at Bethlehem is first, there is a way to live that pleases God. And now secondly, we must receive that way and receive it in a new covenant way by faith in Jesus Christ and confidence that God is the teacher and the enabler of the commandments that come. Number three, third feature of this model of exhortation and accountability. Paul requests and exhorts them. The verse begins that way, verse one. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Now, that's what God wants us to do at Bethlehem. He doesn't want us to say, oh, God does the teaching fine. We don't need small groups and we don't need to talk to each other. Even God's doing it fine. That's just not the biblical response to God's doing it. The biblical response is exhort, request, urge, warn. Why? Because I planted, Apollos watered and God gives the increase. In other words, to say that God gives the increase doesn't mean you don't need a plan. To say that God gives the increase doesn't mean you don't need a water. To say that God teaches love doesn't mean I don't need to teach love. God teaches love in this church through me and through you to each other in small groups. It is not either or. God uniquely liberates and transforms and enables us to respond to the word that comes through a friend in a small group who says, Are you loving? How are you doing? Are you struggling? Can I pray for you? Is your attitude right on this issue? That's God's Word. That's God talk. That's the Spirit moving horizontally and vertically into their life to liberate them to be new covenant people. God wants that here at Bethlehem. If this church were not a covenant community, if we had not voluntarily accepted the church covenant, then I suppose you could say it's intruding. Somebody asked me how I'm doing in my family devotions or in my evangelism or in my sex life or in my money. It's intruding, but it's not intruding if you have voluntarily taken on the covenant, which is what it means to be a church. Instead... Far from being intruding, it is love, it is faithfulness, it is loyalty to one another. The fourth and final feature of this model of exhortation and accountability is, at the end of the verse, that you may excel still more and more. The aim of our mutual exhortation, the aim of our requesting is that we might press on and excel and grow in our covenant fulfillment. You received this from the beginning. He's not coming with new commandments here. He, they received the covenant at the beginning. Paul calls it in Romans 6:17, um, "I thank my God, That you have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you have been committed. Isn't that a remarkable way of talking? He thanks God because God did the obedience. I thank God that you became obedient to a form of teaching that I delivered to you and that you were delivered to by God. That's the covenant. The covenant terms are set out as a form of teaching in the New Testament. God hands over the people and enables them to obey. And Paul thanks God that they have become obedient from the heart. It's been written on their heart. And so we don't exhort each other with constantly new thought up commandments. We just exhort each other to return to the, to the covenant and to fulfill what we have pledged ourselves to do. So let me summarize this this model now. Number one, we acknowledge first of all in our small groups, just picture yourself in a small group now and how this would work itself out. We acknowledge there is a way to walk and to please God. There is a way. You're in it or you're out of it. Secondly, we receive it. We have set our seal to it. In fact, we're going to mail out the church covenant in a week to everybody with a place for you to set your seal to it and we'll come together on March 7 and in a solemn way say verbally that our, our confidence is in the Lord and our commitment is to one another in this covenant and to hand in a sealed statement of the covenant. Third, we request from each other and we exhort each other again and again, day in and day out and week in, And week out to stir each other up to love and to good works. And fourthly, we do this not just for those who have one foot in sin, but for those who have both feet in righteousness. We do it for the wayward and the stalwarts. We do it for the failing and the successful. We do it for the cold and the fervent. We do it for laymen and we do it for pastors. We say, Excel! Still more and more. We don't ever look at anybody and say, Oh, they're beyond exhortation. They don't need to be told to do anything. They just need to be commended. That's not biblical. No one is above sinning No one is above covenant breaking and the best protection against covenant breaking is covenant excelling. Excel still more and more. The church covenant is not something that ought to be read once a quarter maybe and then forgotten. The church covenant is something that ought to be woven into the life of our church, right down into our small groups and used week in and week out to ask each other how we're growing and how we're doing. Let me close with a few examples from paragraph 3 on the back of your worship folder in the covenant. I want to point out something about the nature of the covenant that is very New Testament. I believe the, the, the historic forming of this covenant over the last couple hundred years is biblical through and through. And that it is a well-proportioned document. What I mean by that is that it steers a central course between excessive unbiblical detail and vague useless generalization. I want to illustrate that with just a few of its phrases. Paragraph three. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions. Now, it does not say what those devotions should look like. It doesn't say when you should do them. It doesn't say how often you should do them. It honors the tremendous variety of ways in which families and individuals commune with the living God and express their devotion to Him. But it does honor Matthew 6, 5, and 6, which says there is a closet, And we are to be found alone with God in that closet. And he who sees in secret will reward you. And so in our small groups, we must say to one another, how's it going in your secret devotions? What are the stumbling blocks? What are you struggling with? Is TV keeping you away? Is your heart grown cold? How's it going with prayer? How is it with Bible reading? What books are you finding helpful? I'm struggling. Can you help me? That's the kind of talk that should flow out of the covenant. Here's another example. Next phrase. We engage to educate our children in the Christian faith. It doesn't say homeschooling is the best way. It doesn't say Sunday school is mandatory. It doesn't say Christian schools are always better than public schools. The covenant is not a blueprint for your life. The covenant leaves room for discussion and differences of application, understanding, but it takes very seriously and honors Ephesians 6:4. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, in our small groups, we must say to each other, "How's it going with the kids?" are they resistant to the bible can i pray for you what's the cutting edge of the crisis kids move through incredible phases one year they're as malleable and open as you can imagine the next year you wonder if they're going to be pagans the rest of their life where are you in your life how can i help i'm struggling would you pray for my daughter my son that's what grows out of the church covenant in a small group one last example We engage to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintance. Again, it doesn't say, what, by prayer, loving service, four laws, quest for joy, long-term friendships, immediate confrontations. It doesn't settle that issue. The covenant is not a blueprint. I hope you are not feeling, as the covenant is laid out here, that something narrow and unbiblically detailed Is being put before you. It never has been. It won't be. It is simply a general pointer. Towards scripture. And what this one right here says is. Romans 10.1 counts. My heart's desire and prayer to God. Is that my kinsmen. Might be saved. And so in a small group. You say how did it go with the lunch. With your father last week. We were praying for you. Was he open at all? How about your teenage kid who's not at home anymore? The letter that you mailed three weeks ago that we prayed about. Did he respond yet? That's the meaning of the church covenant. I hope you get a feel for it. We have pledged ourselves to walk in a way that pleases God. Let us help one another. And when you see somebody who's excelling, tell them, I praise God for you. And I pray for you every day that you not become self-satisfied and that you excel still more and more so that when I come back and see you in a year or two, I will find you light years ahead of me as you already are, but advancing more and more. Let me read the rest of it with you. We engage to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting and excessive anger. That means to avoid gossiping and idle chatter about people and unkind, vengeful remarks about others and anger that comes from piqued egos and breeds bitterness without any redemptive effect. And then this last sentence, we created in 1982 and added to the covenant. To seek God's help in abstaining from all drugs... Food, drink, and practices which bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. Through and through, this covenant does not settle the detailed issues of life. Which drugs, Piper? Which food are you talking about? Which drink? Which practices? I'm not telling you which. That's the point. Again and again, the covenant sends you back To the guidance of scriptures and the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the corporate wisdom of the body in small groups stirring each other up and wrestling with how do you practice these things. Do you drink coffee? Do you eat white sugar? Do you not exercise? Do you get only six hours of sleep? Or do you live another way? We're not going to lay down laws about those things in this church. We're going to say they're important. And they're important to work on together. It matters how you sleep. It matters what you eat. It matters whether you exercise. But we will not write a blueprint for one another. We will say, go to the Scriptures, go to the Spirit, go to the body, and excel still more and more. And God will write it. God will write it on your heart. Let's pray. O oh Lord in heaven, As we close and our prayer teams are prepared to pray with people, I ask that even in that encounter, the way that we should walk and please you would be manifest. Bring people to the front who need prayer this morning, Lord, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Grant them to seek help in these few minutes. And Lord, teach us what it means to be bound together in covenant, not in picky, excessive detail, but rather in broad, deep, profound commitments to the way of Scripture that calls us into fellowship with you and Christ-likeness and gives us the ability because you
0: write it on our hearts. And all the people said, Amen.